Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight, with the 2018-2019 season winding down and the summer festivals have yet to begin, things are a little quiet in opera land. Don't worry, the OBS guys are here to get loud with a show tonight featuring a plethora of sound clips. We're going to crunch the numbers and recap the results from the 2019 International Opera Awards, which took place last night in London. We're going to introduce you to some new singers. And then it's a brand new segment called Spring Training for Your Ears. We'll get you ready for how to listen to any Recitativo Secco that might be coming your way this summer, plus two-minute drill. You get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can always call us on air, get your voice heard, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. Tweet us at Opera Box Score. Post on our Facebook page. Oliver Camacho, have you worked off that hangover from the Triviata We just experience? got back from the parade, um, and yeah, definitely, uh, I forget what city we were in. It was so, uh, it was so much alcohol. <laughs> I had all that so, ticker tape in my yeah, hair. Yeah, I had from confetti the... in my eyes. I couldn't <laughs> see anything. Yeah. Tobias Wright, how about you? Did you recover? I recovered. Hey, okay, so longtime listeners of this show will know that I have a really hairy back. I just got to share with you guys, I got a massage this weekend, and my girlfriend was like, did it ever like freak you out that... You know, you have a really hairy back and you wonder what they think. And I'm like, no, I just let it flow. And then today, my brother sent me an Amazon product called the Backblade 2.0, and it is a bladeless back hair trimmer. I Welcome to Opera Box Score, yeah, my friends. I, no, don't go on. So it's the <laughs> NBA uh, playoffs going on right now. And so I have a roommate who really like he's not American, but he loves American basketball. And I've just been watching some games with him. And there are some really good-looking guys uh in the playoffs, um, they're tall, and, dark, and handsome, basically, and right? Yeah. Like they all seem to be <laughs> married to like single one of them. <laughs> they all seem to be married to like Kardashian family people. So I think you're talking about you're talking about Ben Simmons for the 76ers. Seventy Sixers, Seventy Sixers. Yeah, we thought we were. Ta- I was talking about Chris Humphreys, but it's Ben Simmons. Does he play for Philadelphia? Yes, the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers. Yeah. yeah, that's an attractive guy there. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. he really is. Yeah. My favorite player in the NBA plays for the 76ers, and that is Joel Embiid. And he's, Why is he your favorite? Because he went to KU, baby. Oh, Rock Chuck wow. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Bit of a sports desert right now. Let's talk some opera. Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. The International Opera Awards were held last night nope, in London. No, last Monday. This is a week old. Last Monday? Yeah, a week, a week ago today, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I'm off by a whole time. week. Yeah. That's okay, George. <laughs> You're with us now. Onward, but I have to onward, say, onward. Speaking of, of last week, I thought it was really sweet to hear Matt Cummings uh, sort of premiere as a co-host and if you listen to the episode we put out last week but it's mm. like a best up clips mm-hmm. yeah and he's so smart and he's like, literally the smartest human yeah. i've ever met and george yeah. tried to give him like a really difficult pop quiz like it was really really hard and 
he aced it. it he was, totally aced it. Was it. So awesome. So. He totally aced it. Yeah. He's in charge of my finances. He plans. Really? Like, yeah. Oh, I just, nice. I just, I Good. just love Matt. Good for him. <laughs> uh, the International Opera Awards, therefore, were over a week ago. No, a week ago. Today, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, you can go to our website, operaboxcore.com, to look at all of the nominees and all of the award winners from last night. Maybe we should just go round the horn here and pick out someone surprising, someone that got passed over, somebody that was very deserving. We've got some clips as well. And perhaps, Oliver, you'd like to go first well, with what just, really stuck so out with you. I'm a big recordings person. And um, the recordings that were nominated, uh, best complete recordings, uh, were Dean's Hamlet. I don't know who Dean is on Opus Arte. Uh, Halevi's uh, La Reine de Cifre. Uh, Monteverdi's Return of Ulysses and Patria, uh, Rossini's Semiramide, uh, Giovanna Darko recording on Decca by Verdi, and a Meisterzinger on Deutsch Grammophon. And the winner for the season was uh, Opera Rara's recording of Semiramide, which does sort of have a Chicago connection. The Semiramide on the recording is none other than Russian soprano Albina Shagimurotova, who seems to always be singing at Lyric Opera. Uh, the Arsace is Daniela Barcelona. Other singers on this recording are Barry Banks, who's an amazing... He's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's and so great. And a bass who I fell in love with when he was here in Chicago singing Seneca in Johnny the Gardener's uh, Monteverdi project, um, Gianluca Burrato, which makes you hungry for cheese, isn't it? Yeah. A little I bit. was yeah. just about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's about that time. But let's a little hear burrata. a little bit of the Act One duet between Semiramide and Arsace. So um, if there are 20 recordings of Semiramide out there, I have 17 of them. There's probably not 20, but it's up there. Um, it's one of my favorite operas to listen to. And, uh, you know, it's serious Rossini, you know, his more, um, you know, opera serious style, uh, Neapolitan style as well. And, um, you know, it's going to be hard to dethrone the Joan Sutherland, uh, Marilyn Horn, Samuel Ramey recording on Decca. Uh, except that they didn't really have a good tenor back then. So we have better tenors now for singing this type of music. But Joan Sutherland as Semiramide and Marilyn Horner as Arsace is really impossible to beat. Uh, I think any new entry into the Semiramide catalog has to find another angle. And I think the angle of this recording, uh, the Age of Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, conducted by Sir Mark Elder, uh, is the ornamentation and the approach to the style. And for those who know, those of us who know the horn Southern recording very well. It's sort of stop and go, stop and go, and there are you know moments where the drama just stops for the sake of bel canto, which I love. Uh, but this opera, this recording seems to have a little bit more forward momentum, and the ornaments seem to not take away from uh, you know the the rhythm overall rhythm of the piece. And I haven't heard the entire recording, but I did sample a couple of tracks. It's like okay, I see what they're doing here. Uh, it is it's a pretty good recording of Samiramide, and I, I don't I haven't listened to the other recordings yet, but you know. Why not Albina Shagimuratova? You've got a great name. Shagimuratova? Yeah. <laughs> we cover a lot on this show. You know, I was just thinking about it. And what time we've been on the air for nine minutes. We've talked about back hair, NBA playoffs, and then we go in depth about Marilyn Horn, Dame Sutherland. <laughs> the orchestra of the Age of the Enlightenment. Like, what do our listeners, they have to think we're crazy, right? No, they love it. They, it's yeah. sort of a you know, mannequin here, you know? 
Good. And they got little, you know, gay stuff earlier too. You know. <laughs> when I turn to <laughs> the our audience, so. National Opera Awards, of course, I'm always looking first and foremost at the director column. Uh, six nominees this year: Vasily Barkatov, Calixto Bieto, Rodula Gitanu, Katie Mitchell, David Poutney, and Christoph Wolakowski. I will be honest and say two of those four names I've never heard before. Wow. That means that means nothing because clearly they're giants of opera if they're being nominated for an IOA. Calixto Bieto, of course, the bad boy from Spain, has been in this business so long, just turning opera on its head and doing the most outrageous, disgusting things possible on stage. I love his work. I'm surprised he's <laughs> he's been nominated because I, I, I feel like he's a little beyond this, almost. I, it feels like this is an award he should have won years ago. Mm. Uh, Rodula Gitano, who's Greek, is actually a colleague of mine, so brava to her. Katie Mitchell, the winner, she's a phenomenal director. She works in theater, she's a academic, and she works in opera as well. Recently, best known for staging oratorios. Hmm. And not an easy task. Not an easy task at all. It's something as an art form that hasn't really caught on in this country. It, it is done, but very rarely that an oratorio would be staged. I feel like it's a great art form to be put into three dimensions of acting, mm-hmm. design, directing, interpretation. So I, I think this is a really great choice that she walked away as a winner. It's Upper Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright working your uh, way through the International Opera Awards. Tobias, what was on your list as um, a winner? Well, I don't think we're going to listen to any clips, but male singer was Charles Casanova, who I think we all know is just phenomenal. I don't know. Every time, so he's, he's American. Yep. And I'm, actually, there's a couple of Americans that were nominated. Charles Casanova is American. Brandon Jovanovich, another tenor. Somebody that I love and who frequents everywhere. Who Oliver apparently doesn't think is great. But Jovanovich. Alex, Alex, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no I, I wait, think he just heard, threw him under the no, bus, I did. Bro. I totally did. Wait, there was one of the male singers, though, that I honestly, I can admit this. I didn't know who John Osborne was. Forgive me, world. But in my Googling and then listening, one, an incredible voice, tenor. But he grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, which is like where I grew up. And so it's Aww. like that that whole corn in the soil or Nebraska so and Iowa. I always get your story mixed up. I thought you are from Kansas. Well, yeah. I spent like the majority of my childhood in Nebraska. Okay. But then yeah. I associate with Kansas. Not that that matters to anybody. Um, okay. So one of the interesting things was a rediscovered uh, recording. Um, rediscovered opera. Where Yeah. Where's that category? Rediscovered, rediscovered opera. Works, yeah. Who won it? Can't uh, find Artis- it. Um, but by Hasa. pinch gut in yeah, uh, pinch Australia. Gut in, yeah. Okay, so in researching, <laughs> this is I'm going to go on a tangent. Stop me if I need to. In researching some of the rediscovered works, um, there's the Mascani Isabeau, and as we all know, Mascani Cavalera Russicana, and then um, Iris. Lamico Fritz. Yeah, Lamico and so I was kind of like, what does this opera sound like? And so I started to listen to it, and um, this is a production between. Um, New York City Opera and uh, Opera Holland Park. Anyway, one of the arias um, was Tu Cori Lo Mio Grido. It's sung by the tenor, and it's like this glorious aria, but it is so insanely difficult. And then I started reading the review. Guys, stop me when I need to. And this is what the reviewer said. Act one ends on a note of high anticipation and the prospect of leading lady getting her kit off. And then Miscani and his librettist Ilica, the man behind Tosca and Madame Butterfly, clearly having an off day, simply shrug aboard a love duet before it started and cut the whole thing dead with a choral melee and an ending that's as sadistic as it is perfunctory. <laughs> anyway, I loved it, and I'm glad that we your, didn't have your to Your time is to up, play. man. <laughs> Oliver, I learned so much let's today. Let's throw this back to you, yeah, well, and then so we'll there, finish there are, off with me. There are a couple of um, voices that are new to me, and it seems to be that International Opera Awards generally um, are covering the European houses. We don't see that many American opera companies or American singers represented um, in these lists of, um, you know, best young singer, best female, best male. So, for example, the um, young singer nominees were Julian Baer, Jody Davos, uh, Justin Kim, who was a friend of the show, who mm-hmm. did an interview with us while he was in Chicago for the Monteverdi Project, mm-hmm. Soraya Mafi, Siabanga Makungo, Marina Viotti and Amanda Woodbury. 
So the winner for this was Marina Viotti, who is a uh, Swiss um, mezzo-soprano. And I thought we'd hear uh, some of her final round uh, concert aria um, from the Operalia competition last year, which was won by Emily D'Angelo. But here's a little bit of more Rossini, uh, sung by Marina Viotti. All right, so I want, I want you to come back to me um, for one more clip before we close the segment. I wanted to say a couple things. Uh, so Marina Viotti, I've never heard her sing before. Great technique. Um, this repertoire, this, you know, color to Rossini repertoire, uh, so many people are doing it now who didn't use it before. And, you know, a singer like Joyce DiDonato, for example, we all know that she can do it. But there are other singers like uh, Ju Julie Lez Lezvezhna, I think her name is. Lez Lez you know who I'm talking about. She's Russian. She's like 12 <laughs> years old and she can sing this stuff like she was born to do it. Um, so I'll say that like what was interesting about her voice was the connection of her registers was really was really seamless. But as far as like rapid fire color tour technique, it didn't feel like it to me. And um, yeah, like I think now anybody who's singing Rossini these days has got to be able to do that like highly articulated, if not even articulated, just high speed color tour. You know who's not 12 years old is Marina Viotti. Yeah. Man, she does not look that young. Well, I think it's like new on the scene singer, not like under 20. Okay. Singer, you know? I, it's an interesting, it is an interesting category. She, she could really benefit from some acting lessons too. I would just say that. It's based, a competition. It's like, a, yeah, it's so anyway. Okay. I have one more thing and then I'll go to turn it back to you, but I do want to play one more clip after you're done with your next category. Uh, there uh, is a solo recording category at the International Opera Awards. This year, the nominees were Javier Camarena, Max Emmanuel Chenchich, countertenor, Stefan de Goo, Elsa Dreisig, uh, Anita Rachvelishvili, and Stuart Skelton. And the winner was Stefan de Goo for a concept uh, which actually has been done many times before. It's a, he's a bass baritone, and it's like arias and scenes of like devil or hell, you know, arias. Everybody's done that. But here's a twist. <laughs> bad guys. Yeah, exactly, bad guys. Here's a twist. All French Baroque. And not all of it is opera. Some stuff, some of it is like uh, the theme from Castor and Pollux that Rameau turned into a Requiem Mass type of deal, you know? And it's really clever because, like, I love French Baroque music. There isn't a ton of solo music for bass baritone. And so he had to bring in a bunch of supporting singers and chorus and the production value on this recording is very high. We don't have time to listen to a clip that I selected, but go check it out. It's called Enfer, E-N-F-E-R-S because they have extra consonants in French. Uh, Stéphane Degout, really good recording if you're interested in hearing some French Baroque and I love this singer. Stéphane is really handsome too. In general, I agree with you, Oliver, that the International Opera Awards are really the European Opera Awards. This year in comparison to other years past, it really seemed very light on Americans. There's not a single American chorus that's nominated. There is not a single American uh, director nominated, certainly. Um, one... No new productions. No new productions. One American nominee in education one for opera company, uh, that was Houston Grand Opera. Pittsburgh Opera was the education nominee. Uh, L.A. Opera for the Opera Orchestra. It, it, uh, one opera, um, Limit Beecher's Sky on Swings, Opera yeah, Philadelphia sure. for world premiere. It, it seemed like a light year for the Americans. Well, dovetailing on that, the female singer category uh, nominees were Anna Caterina Antonacci, Italian, Daniela Barcellona, also Italian, Sabine Devieille, French, Rosa Feola, Italian, Pretty Yende, South African, and the winner, Asmik Gregorian, who I'd never heard of, but apparently she won the Young or the Newcomer Award or the Young Singer Award in 2016, and now she has advanced to the She's fully mature. Lithuanian. Singer. She's Lithuanian. Uh, her repertoire is mostly, you know, Puccini heroines and like Janacek and 
sort of the bigger, you know, um, you know, Lyrico Spinto stuff. Um, but she is known for her Marie in Wozzeck and for her Tatiana hmm. in um, Eugene Onegin. And I did find a concert of her singing the letter scene uh, just last year with the uh, Orchestra Suisse Romande. And uh, let's just hear the big moment of the letter scene with Esme Gregorian. Yeah, okay. I'm going to put a link to that clip on her website, operaboxscore.com. She is acting the crap out of that aria. Don't tell me that you can't be in a competition or a, a concert like this, and you can't go absolutely all out. Plus, she's got a fantastic dress on as well. You know, um, okay. Oliver, you mentioned loving French music and French Baroque music, and, and the winner of the Philanthropy Award was the Foundation Brew, and it's out of Switzerland, and actually, so the Palazzetto Bruzzain is the voca- it's actually an organization, an educational school that um, they founded, and its interest range from chamber music to the orchestral, sacred, and operatic repertoires, not forgetting the lighter genres characteristic of the Esprit Francais. So it's all about preserving French uh, styles and everything dating back to preserve their heritage. I thought you would like that. Yeah, but I don't see who else were the nominees. It's one of those things where it's like life and eh, achievement. It's, it's like probably because no- they've sponsored the whole thing. Yeah. I don't know where their other nominees are. Hey, I can't, I can't hey it turns out. out you can vote for the Reader's Award. Yeah, Did this year it was, won, it was won by Sonia Oncheva, but the uh, nominees were Bass Ildar Abrazakov, Abra, uh, Mezzo, Sarah Oh, lay off the vodka, buddy, <laughs> before you say that. <laughs> tenor Michael Fabiano, tenor Vittorio Gagolo, baritone Thomas Hampson, soprano slash conductor Barbara Hannigan, soprano Anna Martinez, and soprano Sonia Yoncheva. I don't know how you get nominated for a Reader's Award. but oh, I don't know how you pick between those. Yeah, they're all so different. I mean, I feel like Barbara Hannigan should win all the time. Or Vittorio Gagolo if you're going by... Um, Photogenic, photo, photo, <laughs> photo, photo <laughs> genius. I thought you say like number of <laughs> hair follicles. He doesn't have a lot. He's actually very smooth. Yeah, in in um, reverse. Oh, okay. So the fewer hair follicles Order. you have, the the more votes you get. Actually, Michael Fabiano so Toby, doesn't have a ton lose. of hair. Either. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about, man? His back is like covered <laughs> in hair. I'm covered. I'm All right. Enough about bald. the hair. No, Victoria Gold has a very smooth chest. Like a baby, mm. like a baby's ass. Get ready for our brand new segment, Spring Training for Your Ears. <laughs> That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Let's do some spring training for your ears. Thanks, Norm. 
It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and I HD. love me a good new intro. <laughs> I know, but I feel like now that, so we created that intro to be used as like a quick hit for uh, opera, the opera trivia event we did, the Triviata event. Yeah. Um, and we wanted Norm to do it, just do a quick one, you know, but we should have asked to do a more luxurious one. For when we oh, it's all about the background music. Don't yeah. worry, baby. You so, want to bring it down a level? I can bring it down a level. <laughs> so yeah, so we hosted. I do like when we have like the R and B themed, like background music. We hosted Triviata <laughs> a couple weeks ago, and uh, we wanted to have some like buffer segments uh, that we could use while we were tallying scores or between questions, and whatnot. And so uh, we have, we have some content coming at you. Uh, this is a, a segment that was hopefully trying to teach our audience there and you all. Uh, just like some things that we maybe take for granted as you know professionals of opera, uh, and just like remind you that this is a concept or this is a term, and here's a definition, and you know help help you en enrich your experience of the opera. And I thought that I would talk about Sacco Reset because it's really one of those things that uh, I think people don't get it, and they're bored by it, and they uh, they think of it as a signal to tune out of what's happening on stage. And in fact, I would say. That you can. I mean, if you really are not at the opera for the story uh, and you are, you know, you really want to just maybe like gaze into the eyes of the person you came to see the show with, you know, this is a good time to do it, you know, during the Sacco Reset. Um, let's just so we know what we're, we're talking about, let's hear this first clip that I've queued up. So that was uh, from Act Two of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Um, that was Margaret Price as the Countess, Kathleen Battle as Susanna, and we heard a little bit of Anne Murray as Carabino. And obviously, it feels like a lot of dialogue. There isn't a lot of melody there. And uh, really, it's a way to um, get out a lot of dialogue the way that that is scored, that the singers in a way sort of take a break you know they're not doing this this big aria moment so they can bring their voice down to more of like a we say parlando or like more of like a chatty tone quality which is easier to do over the course of a long evening of opera um and i was trying to get toby to think of a, a relationship or a correlation in sports like what is like the moment in a sport that we all watch mm. where the players are, um, you know, important stuff is happening on stage and in the drama, but for the audience, it's really not a moment that people feel really engaged by. Yeah, so we we as singers know that Seco Reset is a really integral part of pushing the drama forward because an aria is a stop of time. So that is a suspension of belief and time. Um, the Reset is how the story takes place, essentially. Um, and, and oftentimes it's hilarious or full of drama um, and really important. And so what I would equate it to is in baseball, you're at the game, you're watching it, and there's action for all of a second. And then you're like, okay, great. I got I to gotta wait. Hey, get that out of here. I'm talking. I got to wait 20 seconds for the next thing to happen. And so what I equate it to is in baseball, the pitch happens. And then as the catcher returns it, you think, well, nothing's going on now. But there's a million different moving pieces, and that's when the drama's unfolding because the catcher and the pitcher have so much data that they've collected about the hitter that they're saying, well, in this situation, he has this tendency. The coaches are looking in the field and making a shift there, and so they're playing a game there, and that's what the psycho recit is. And it, the audience doesn't necessarily know um, but there's a tremendous amount of information giving during a recit. For me, it's like a line change in hockey where two or three hockey players are going to come uh, off the ice onto the bench and they'll be replaced by two or three other hockey players. It's very rare that a goal would be scored during a line change. It's rare that there'd yeah, be a huge a event. Point. But the action of the game is going to continue. There's there's a change in the cast. There's a change in the characters. Ooh. The story moves on. Talk dirty I to was, me. I was thinking much more simply like it's like dribbling in a basketball game, but I think understands what's way better than I do. On your I, shirt I, I really <laughs> like I really like that hockey. Now I've never watched hockey though, so so going one layer further. Like the recording we sampled was Ricardo Muti's complete recording uh, with the uh, Vienna Philharmonic. Um, 
that was, I think we heard a forte piano and we probably heard mm-hmm. a bowed, a bowed bass, like a cello. Um, the more we incorporate the idea of historical performance practice, we start to see the relationship that Seco Reset has with earlier opera, early examples of opera. So super quick music history lesson. Um, when opera was created at the beginning of the 17th century, the Italian composers were trying to, you know, figure out a way how to do, create a sung drama, sung dramas that they fantasized or they theorized existed in like Greek times of like storytelling and whatnot. So the early operas like Monteverdi operas, for example, feel like mostly Sacco Reset. It isn't Sacco Reset. It's actually something called Monody where there's a lot of attention paid to the text and basically, you know, three-fourths of the opera or even more than that is just this type of, you know, dialogue and uh, text setting. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's difficult for a lot of people, I think, who are used to, like, Puccini to go to a Monteverdi opera and to try to engage with it because it feels like it does a thing to a lot of Sacco Reset. It's not. Uh, and what makes those early operas interesting is how uh, that storytelling is underscored by a very creative continuo accompaniment. Um, the continuo section uh, is essentially um, a harmonizing instrument and a bowed bass that gives very transparent support to the singers who are trying to do this seco recit. Um, and mostly in Mozart operas that are performed today, it's done by a harpsichord and a cellist. But uh, there isn't really pre-prescribed instrumentation for that. And you know who was playing the continuo part uh, in any Mozart opera of its time was really was based on what they had in the pit, you know. So let's listen to an example of one of the early music performance practice pioneers, Nicholas Harnoncourt, um, with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra uh, in his recording of Marriage Figure, the same bit of recit. So something very subtle happened there. Uh, it was just an elongation of uh, the rhythm, not like changing the rhythm, but just the one measure got stretched out. And you probably noticed that the cello, which was playing on a gut string, um, had this little moment where it came out of the texture. Um, and that is very creative and specific continual playing that really is meant to highlight just a micro moment in this opera. Now here's the other layer. So for people like me who have listened to this opera a hundred plus times, I'm looking for those moments. I'm looking for the moment in the Sacco Reset where it becomes more interesting, where the conductor or the singer has made a very specific choice. And to me, Ardencourt wanted to bring out the, uh, almost like an arioso moment in just that one bar where the cellist is playing a little bit louder, a little bit more phrasing, a little bit more obviously and is underscoring uh, an idea in the text. Uh, the Contessa is explaining to Susanna that her husband is terrible, but she won't say it. She won't say how he's terrible. She just says, ugh, you don't know. And then that cello moment is all the anguish that she feels. And it's incredible. Uh, Seco recitative is, I think, some of the hardest stuff to do on stage as a performer. Thank God I'm not a performer. I just have to direct it. And I'm developing a class that focuses entirely just on Seco Reset. To me, and what I say to my students, is that the notes in the Reset are the closest approximation that, say, someone like Mozart could come up to of speech within the construct of his time. But by and large, and I think Oliver and Toby might agree with this, is that singers tend to be almost too accurate With the notes that they're singing. I actually really agree with that. And one of the things that that makes me excited about Seco Reset was learning it. That taught me languages, specifically Italian, better than any other form of singing could. And that was because the masters like Mozart, is who I think of the most as a young singer, um, wrote it, just like you were saying, as the closest approximation to what the stresses could be. Um, and one of the things, so everybody when they sing Mozart now gets a Baron Rider critical edition that has all of these like 
what the appoggiatura is, et cetera, et cetera, should be. And what I think that takes away from is the freedom to express. And, and when we were talking about the semirane earlier, you said one of the things, like their angle was the um, ornament. Motion and ornamentation. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what seco recit should have. It should have, it should have been a natural thing for people to get to the end of a line and do an appoggiatura. Based, I, go ahead. It's oh. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM talking you can spring training for your ears and the topic of seco recitative. Just for, for you non-musicians out there, this is actually one of the hardest things that singers have to do is mm-hmm. memorize an entire opera. And a character like Susanna in this in this Marriage of Figaro is on stage for like three-fourths of the opera. So it's a lot of rest that she has to learn. And you actually have to learn it rhythmically. Mm-hmm. Like once you're on the stage, yes, you need to be more free with it. But the conductor will know if you did not learn the rhythms because he's trying to keep you know, a large beat in there so that it doesn't drag on forever and ever. It's not free speech. It is it is structured rhythmically. And then you mm-hmm. end up with conductors like Renee Jacob, we're about to hear, who wants the singers to like almost speak on top of each other. And he's like cramming, you know, the recits like so close together that uh, you don't really even feel the big pulse because he wants it to feel more like speech. Uh, that's what Renee Jacobs does. We're actually not going to hear an example of that, but having talked to Jenny Rivera Rice, uh, who made a couple recordings with Renee Jacobs, uh, I know that's how he works. But what I want to bring up with Renee Jacobs is how creative he gets with the continual instruments. Let's hear this version. Quanto tu messo sonno, che questo giovinotto abbia del conte le stravaganze udite. So when you look at the score, you're basically just seeing some chords uh, that are, you know, articulated on certain syllables of certain words in the text. But with Rene Jacobs, you hear all this extra stuff. It's not written the score, but, you know, you hear all these little twiddles and, you know, uh, it's meant to, you know, give the continuum more character and to maybe even tell the subtext of the story, you know? Absolutely, it's meant to tell the subtext. And to me, what I talk to my singers is that the singer is always driving the story. The singer is driving the recit. And that the uh, instrumentalists are essentially responding and reacting to that. And what I think you heard in that last clip is that keyboardist almost joking around and responding to the story that's happening on stage. Yeah, and um, it's adding adding character, uh, and that moment where the Contessa says "Tu non sai" that was Veronique Jean. Um, she was being a little bit melodramatic there, and it felt like the continua player wanted to get off of that. Like it's almost as if Susanna was embarrassed that she was hearing the Contessa about to confess, you know, these terrible things that her husband does. So she's trying to keep the mood light, you know. And I thought that was really, really clever, but it did take away from the moment of the Contessa being vulnerable. So that is a pretty recent recording. I think that was made in the late 90s, the early aughts. I should know the answer to that question because I really love that recording. But the recording I keep coming back to for Marriage of Figaro is George Schulte uh, with Kiri Takano as the Contessa. I think Thomas Allen is the uh, Count. Uh, Frederica von Stada is Carabino. Uh, Lucia Pop is Susanna, and uh, the Figaro is Samuel Ramey. Uh, this is considered to be one of the all-time great recordings of opera in general, not just of Marriage of Figaro. And it's because the singing is just so good, and Schulte really understands opera in general. He may not be a performance practice guy. It wasn't really part of his training, uh, but he really does coach the singers in a way that makes their characters so, so uh, deep and uh, detailed. And Kiri Takanwa isn't really known as like a super detailed singer, but if she's coached properly, it's hard to beat the level of just intensity she puts into what she does. And once again, this is the exact same clip, and it's going to feel very old-fashioned, but just listen to what Kiri Takanwa does with her voice. So 
a super quick moment just passed by. It said, ah, to Nonsai, go back and listen to it. She just stopped the opera and she gave us this incredible tone quality that felt like she could have cried in that moment, you know? And how do you do that as a singer? How do you just tap into that and then move on with the opera? And then it's not even an aria, it's just like this passing moment. So, I mean, that's sort of the big lesson uh, of this spring training for your ears. It's like, yes, you can ignore this part. It's not the most interesting part. But if you want, I mean, the more you learn to love opera, the more you find these details and you realize that this art form is so rich and so layered and you can take enjoyment from the parts of the show that some people just completely tune out of. Toby, you're about to say something? Before the the show, we were joking, Toby, you were joking that you're saying that you haven't done a lot of secco recitative. Uh, is that the truth? And and if so, how come? Well, I think that my voice tended to really go towards sharper singing. Uh, that's why a lot Wait, of... Wait, you were singing sharp? No, I, I mean like more angular singing. Um, that's why I did a lot of new stuff recently and, and, you know, world premieres, English stuff. But, you know, doing... I did Ferrando and Cosi Fantute and then I did um, Don Otavio as well. And I so that's like my biggest, my most experience, I guess. Um, with that recit and that stuff to me was just that like I said that was how I learned to do Italian really well was just by the phrasing and the shaping there and and Oliver I really think you're right that when people actually tune into those moments it's not that you're like tuning in to say oh how how exactly did they move but you really really can find out the artistry of the people on the stage when you just tune in and, and it's they can be really beautiful moments like when she says ah and then give that time back. You know, that was a total suspension of the entire show. So I know you want to go, but we are in this era now where I, I don't know sports as well as you guys, but we all have this cultural phenomenon, Game of Thrones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's this source material and there's like all this like lore out there and people get mad about the show because it didn't follow this thing exactly. You know, And like there are people there who take so much enjoyment from knowing every detail, knowing what the map looks like, knowing what the weapon was made of, all that stuff, you know? And, like, they geek out about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes me so happy that people find something like that to get really deep into it and get mad about it, you know, when it's not done correctly. And that's how I feel. It's like sometimes I go to an opera and, like, I feel like the, the conductor or the stage director or the singer did not spend enough time working on this material. And it's like, okay, that's disappointing, you know? Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm, I don't... You can't throw it away. Yeah, exactly. So. All right, George, sorry about that. Sports and singing collide. That's up next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. The sports world was thrown into a tizzy about one of the oldest recordings of one of the country's most beloved songs. That's Irving Berlin's God Bless America. It was recorded originally by singer Kate Smith in the late 30s, but a tipster recently has found out that uh, a couple major sports franchises who've been using that song might not want to do so. Smith also made a number of perhaps innocuously intended songs, which would certainly be racist today. An inspiring opera singer who received not one but two sets of transplanted lungs over the course of her life has died at the age of 35. Charity Tillman Dick was a champion of organ donation, which allowed her to continue to do what she felt she was born to do, 
singing. Rahm Emanuel, Chicago's outgoing mayor, former White House chief of staff under Obama, has taken credit for helping negotiations during the Chicago Symphony Orchestra when they came to a successful close. According to the Metropolitan Opera National Council, Executive Director Melissa Wegner, the judges for the most notorious competition in America are being asked to consider four things about the finalist. Quality of the instrument, musicianship, interpretation, and career potential. Finals round concert is broadcast on May 18th. You can find a link to that interview on our website. Audiences who were unable to get to the Opera National de Paris will still have a chance to check out some of the company's many productions via cinema. That means the movies. In some, the company will be showcasing four operas in the 2019 season. A $20,000 grant will help Opera Modesto in California stage three works based on famous novels. One of those in Spanglish. That's the opera Bless Me Ultime by Rudolfo Anaya. Exit stage right. Mark Richter, the founding artistic director and general director of Alamo City Opera. He's died at 51. Among his notable achievements was bringing the contemporary opera as one to Alamo City with transgender mezzo-soprano Liz Book in the lead role this past January. And on this day, May 6th, the other La Boheme, the one by Ruggiero Leon Cavallo, premiered in 1897. Ernst Krenick's Der Dictator had its first performance in 1928. Bulgarian dramatic soprano Gena Mitrova was born in 1941. And French contralto and conductor Natalie Stutzmann was born in 1965. That's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Here we are. Opera Box Score in your ear holes on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD. George Cedarquist with indeed Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. Quickly about the birthday, Natalie Stutzmann is one of my all-time favorite recording artists. I've never seen her perform live, but you can look her up on the YouTube. The YouTube. And, yeah, and her career has transitioned from being just a singer to being a conductor, and she does this crazy stuff where she conducts and sings at the same time. Yes, we know Barbara Hannigan does it, but uh, <laughs> it's so much more interesting to me to watch Natalie Schutzman do it because she just does not look like an opera singer or a conductor. She looks like that. She's like such like a, it's going to sound terrible. I can't even say it. Then um, you shouldn't then, say then, it. Don't, don't. There you go. Stop, stop, Here we, okay. we are yeah. your friends. Thanks, she's an amazing artist and her early stuff, like her early Handel, she did this recording of Handel Arias where she sings Julius Caesar. It's so good. Her voice is so low and crazy and beautiful. The tone quality is so beautiful. I love her so much. I love her. Love her. Yes. Okay, so the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Union have finally come to an agreement after how many weeks of strikes Seven, was it? Seven, eight Seven weeks. weeks. It was a lot. And they'd been Not negotiating months, yeah. for a year. Yeah. Uh, only Rahm Emanuel, the outgoing mayor of Chicago, only he could take all the credit for bringing the two sides together and helping them reconcile their differences. I just, that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Got to don't know what else to Sprinkle a little gold you. dust on his resume as he, you know, it's, gets ready to leave. It's such baloney, dude. I don't know, though, George. I mean, he did get the board to come back to the negotiating table. Negotiating? Negotiating <laughs> table. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. There's an article in the Tribune which interviewed Ram Emanuel... So he could blow his own trumpet. P.S. He's been writing articles for the Atlantic, I believe, mm. as well, about how fantastic he is. Look, <laughs> I'm thrilled that the CSO is playing again. That strike had gotten to the point where everybody was losing. Yeah, the orchestra was losing money, the administration was losing face, and the people of Chicago were losing patience. Patience. They were losing live classical music, and frankly, in our business. People were also losing money, right? Singers in the symphony orchestra, Grant Park Symphony, I mean, that was a, a potential stumbling block as well. Well, the singers had already renegotiated. I think, you know, what's interesting, there was a lot of, um, this wasn't about wages. This was about pensions. It was much bigger, yeah. Yeah, and so that to me it wasn't as, um, they weren't demanding more money. It wasn't a dirty thing. It was, it was a very hard thing, I think, to negotiate. So... And, you know, I'm always going to side on the musician's side. Um, well, I say that. 
I do have a girlfriend who works in administration, so I, I know how these things work, and it can be really difficult. This is what Rom said. Rom says, I told both sides I'm issuing a press release inviting you to negotiate in my office. And then I told each side the other side had said it was going to say yes. That's part of the art of negotiation. It sounds a little Yeah, thanks a lot, pal. If I want Donald Trump, I'll know where to find him. I mean, him. he's known to be sort of like a bully and like to steamroll people. So I wonder if that's what they needed. Like maybe both sides were just too nice at the negotiating table and they just needed somebody to like mediate and like be aggressive. With I'm, all, I'm all about third party negotiators and mediators, Oliver. I agree with you on that point. I just don't like Rama Man. <laughs> I've always liked him. He's been such a great advocate for the arts. Well, he's a former, uh, he's a former ballet yeah, yeah. dancer. Exactly. Isn't yeah. he? Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess the unique thing about this is I don't know the precedent that is there for it. Um, and so living in the city, I mean, you think of Chicago and there's tons and tons of history. And, and when has a mayor had to step in and help negotiations in an arts organization um, to kind of save their season? I thought that was actually, regardless of your political opinion of Rahm, and yeah, he really, really does come off as a blowhard here. But, <laughs> but. I'm, I think it's kind of a cool precedent to have, at least from a historical standpoint. There's some big problems in Philadelphia where the Phillies play and... Um, and the Flyers. The Flyers. This was the, this is the Kate Smith recordings, right? So Kate mm-hmm. Smith, who, she died in 86. She'd done these recordings in the late 30s of Irving Berlin's tune, God Bless America. Turns out she'd made recordings of some other songs with titles such as That's Why Darkies Were Born and... Picking any heaven. Yeah. Whoops. So, I mean, this is this story is getting a little bit old now, but it's been going on for a couple weeks in singer circles. And uh, Anne Majette uh, wrote an article for the Washington Post. And um, she interviewed Morris Robinson and Lawrence Brownlee. And she says, look at the confusion surrounding the national anthem in the wake of the Colin Kaepernick, you know, taking a knee uh, during the anthem, which is supposed to recognize those killed by police violence. And then Kaepernick's gestures was reframed as being disrespectful to the flag and country. Uh, so how do opera singers deal with this? Uh, when Brownlee was asked to sing national anthem before a New York Jets and Baltimore Ravens game, he put out a statement uh, that as a black man in singing the song, well, he wanted to show support for Kaepernick, but to quote him, I feel strongly that my singing career and the public stage it offers me must also bring with it a sense of responsibility and a duty to do what's right. I asked myself whether or not I should sing or stand in silent solidarity. And in the end, I decided to use my voice or use the voice that God has given me to sing with the conflicting emotions that, put, that pull at my heart, the honor, the pride, the frustration, the sadness. And Morris Robinson said something else. He says he draws a parallel to Civil War memorials in Charlottesville. He says, put it in a museum, mm-hmm. uh, a context more appropriate for a critical engagement, but leave the ballpark to the ball games with symbols appropriate to accompany them. And, and to that point... Majette makes, she says that this isn't so much about the music or the person, it's about the symbolism. And so this is more about, and, and when did I, God bless America is not, I don't associate it with sports for whatever reason, but I do kind of associate it with like September 11th. And she mentions that in this, like it became this unifying thing, whereas patriotism prior to that was more of a conservative leaning thought, I guess. And so... You know, in this particular instance, do we think, I mean, what is the answer? Do you never do God Bless America again? Do you get well, rid of the Smith, the, song. the Smith it's recording? About, it's about Kate Smith, which right. is like the iconic recording of that song, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Get somebody it's, else to sing but it, you know? Exactly. That yeah. to me is, a, that's a great solution. Yeah. You or know? America the Beautiful, you know? Which is arguably a prettier song. Yeah, I like it. Maybe you should record it, Toby, and you should be like the new... <laughs> so there's this great article which I wish you would have had time to read um, right after the Met Council editions. But Wait, I have a question. Yeah. Back to the national anthem and symbolic and, and stuff like that. Did you ever sing the national anthem at a sporting event? Uh, at a school game. Yeah. 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 G- George, did you ever? No, no. I a, mean, in the stands. But um, I will tell you, I had the opportunity to sing it at a at numerous large sporting events and it is the most terrifying thing i would never do it because it's so high it sits in i it's the national anthem everybody has an opinion about it i guess so maybe i'm a wimp i did it in a quartet a few times in front of seventeen thousand people and it was the most nervous i've ever been to do you remember what key or was it a variety of keys you were in um 
I want hmm because surely you just put it in a lower F, key. F F sharp. I don't know. It's it's like it it's like either too low for a tenor or too high. Yeah. Now, funny story. I was at a playoff game for the Lakers versus the Denver Nuggets in 2011. In a game in which Kobe Bryant scored 44 points or something and great. went off. It was but great. you have no idea what you had for breakfast this morning. Anyway, go no, on. No, anyway, but my friend Dustin Peterson sang the national anthem, and he did it a cappella, and it got really loud, and he, he started, and he had the pitch, he thought, in his ear, and he started, and he was like a whole step and a half, two steps. Yikes. And it was the most raucous, amazing thing, because once you start, you just kind of like, oh, I got to go mm, now. In my bed. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It was like a rock national anthem. It was dope. So Anthony Tomasini interviewed cool, uh, the executive director. I bring of the, no value to this show. Uh, the Met Council, and uh, I thought he had some really good questions. And uh, one of the things I always wonder is like, how come they, you know, they have whatever seven finalists, but only five of them <laughs> are declared the winner. What about those other two people that that sang in the finals concert? And Melissa Wegner says, uh, singers who make it to this stage of the competition, uh, we maintain close relationships with them. They have an education fund. They're allowed to come back to the Met and audition for artistic staff over the next three years. They might get small roles or covers or potential leading roles down the line. I know it sounds a bit trite to say you're all winners, but no doubt we will see them in the future. I mean, do you? What do you think of that, Oliver? Though, like, there's seven people up there and two people don't win. Yeah. Do you feel like that is a little pat on the head and is kind of demeaning, actually, or does the Met have their best interests at heart? Well, I think they just have to have winners, even though they don't rank their winners. Like, you know, whoever five people are declared the winners, but it's not like this one person was the number one winner. I mean, they have four judges and maybe each judge, you know, is really advocating for somebody. So maybe they one year will only go with three or four. I don't know what the story is, but I think just really to get to that round and to, to be reviewed in The New York Times, be heard and to have that experience with singing with an orchestra in that space. I think that really is a great opportunity for your career that not everybody gets. And I will say that um, they talk about Elena Villon, Villayon, Villalon, I don't know how you say her name. Villalon. Yeah, who was our guest after she won the district finals here, or the regional finals. Um, and yeah, it seems like she was coached to not sing the Rossini thing that she sang here. She ended up singing. Oh, you the, mean the one that you grilled her about? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. to Oliver's credit, though, like you did back a winner. That was relatively early in the in the competition. Uh, which is just year. one of those. I mean, it's obvious that what they're, if they're looking for career potential and like, you know, talent and, you know. Cheap, yeah, man. So. But like uh, no one else on the show called it, uh, you know. Well, I, nobody else was there besides me. So no, well, I take no. my I take my hat off to you. you really know, quick before we run out of time, I have to say that uh, Moby Dick uh, happened at Chicago Opera Theater, and uh, Dave Govertson, friend of a Ch- Chicago singer who gets a lot of work around here, was ill for both performances. And a guy named Nick Ward uh, was in his place as Stub, mm-hmm. did an outstanding for job for both shows. For both shows, yeah. And then for the second show, the originally scheduled tenor for Captain Ahab um, was replaced by oh, I forget his name, uh, but uh, he, the understudy went on, and I should know his name: Alex Rowney or Alex Ripley. Oh my God. Um, but did a great job, and what a great show! Did you see it, Toby? No, I no, I, I did not see it. No. <laughs> for it was, for, for it was political fantastic. reasons, but, but, I did not. Before go. we go to good call, bad call, because um, Toby, your your good call has a sound clip component because tonight's show has yes. had a lot of sound clips. Yes, I want to yes, do yes. that now. Okay, great. So tell talk us through Will Liverman. Okay, so Will Liverman, I'm a huge fan of Will Liverman. We've talked about him on the show. He's a Chicago-based baritone. He's just doing incredible things all over. He posted a video on his Facebook. Um, what is it actually titled? Um, Learn Your Music? It's yeah, called, Learn it's Your Music. And it is... Hmm. We'll play a clip, but if it, maybe we can post it if Will will let us on the website. I don't know. But it is... If you've been a singer and you've gone to a first orchestra or a first read for a show, there's always, always someone who's like, oh, I'm under the weather today. Or like, who is like, oh, that was an eighth note. And it's just so blazing. It's like they didn't learn their music and it is the worst. And Will has an opinion on it. Oh, I already know I'm going to step on some toes today. Hey, how long have you had that contract now? Just call me Uncle Scar, because you need to be prepared. It's the first day of rehearsal. The music, you ain't learned it. I don't care about your voice. The music, you ain't learned it. Got yourself a fancy gig, but the music, you ain't learned it. Trying to say that you ain't sick, but singer, you ain't learned it. 
first day of rehearsal. The music, you ain't learned it. I don't care about your boys. The music, you ain't learned it. Got yourself a fancy gig. The music, you ain't learned it. Trying to say that you ain't sick. The singer, you ain't learned it. Uh, Captain Ahab was sung by Alex Boyer, just to close that loop. Hey, that was my favorite clip we've ever played on Opera Box Square, <laughs> by the way. Because you already don't me Faso Ray is in line. This measure here is in three, four times. Yes. <laughs> the music, you ain't learned it. All right, let's wrap it up. I got to promote something. Yes, Go, we hurry. do. Um, Janai Brugger, our guest uh, from last year, uh, will be singing a recital with Ch Collaborative Arts Institute Chicago and Martin Katz on Wednesday at 10 here in Chicago. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at operaboxscore.com or V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com, Vox or Shorts. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're in the stands or the infield this Saturday at the Kentucky Derby. We're back on Monday, May 13 at 9 p.m. Central. More opera news stories, more hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. <laughs>